Um, my name is Ellie, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm the community pastor here at St. Paul's. And um, it's a joy this morning to get part two of, uh, of this sermon series. Of, uh, we're, we're looking at a sermon series of Come As You Are, but the last two weeks we've been looking at the story of the lost sons, um, commonly known as the prodigal son. And Adam took last week with the story of the younger son, and I get the sequel this week of the older son now. I know that normally sequels are rubbish, you get the difficult second album, but it's all right, okay? This is the Bible, so it's fine. This is worth hanging around for. Um, And if you weren't here last week or you haven't heard Adam's talk yet online, first of all, I would really encourage you to go back and do that. But don't worry too much that you weren't here because essentially... This is a bit like when you watch a Star Wars film, but you haven't seen all the other ones, is that once you get into it, it's just all lightsabers and Ewoks. So it's fine. You'll pick it up. Not really a Star Wars fan. Uh, It's going to be fine. But I would really encourage you to go back um, and listen to Adam's talk from last week, um, which is online. Um, But I'm going to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context to where we are. So Adam brought us up to speed last week. Jesus has been telling this story to a group of Pharisees, and it says in the Bible, sinners and tax collectors. So there's a real mixture of people listening to these stories. You've got people who, quite frankly, are the outcasts of society, and you have the upstanding, moral, in church, every Sunday, people who are listening to this. And Jesus tells a story about a younger son. He's the rebellious one. And he runs away, and he spends all the inheritance, and he really messes up, and he shames his father and the family name. And eventually, he decides to go home and work off his debt. He thinks, that's the only way I can come back. Um, And if you are here last week, you'll remember that the father welcomes him home. He says, you don't have to pay off your debt. You just get to come home. And he receives him. And he he throws a massive, lavish party. And there's a fattened calf that we'll talk about in a bit. And and his father welcomes him back with compassion and joy and grace. And at the end of Adam's sermon last week, he shared this quote, which I didn't find out where it was from, but he shared this quote with us, which I kind of wanted to kick off with today because I've been thinking about it since I heard him say it. And he said this. He said, if you have prodigals coming to your church... You'd better hope they meet the father first and not the older son. See, the older son is not what the father is like. Last week you looked at what the father is like and the father is full of compassion. He doesn't, he doesn't even ask what the son has been up to. I mean, he can probably imagine, but he doesn't ask, he doesn't want details. He just goes, I just want you home. I just want you back. I've missed you. I just want you back. And it's really interesting to me that the father who is that that's his character, that's who he is. But the younger son, he hasn't got that. And the younger son thinks from afar that he's going to have to work off his debt. He thinks that he's going to have to earn back love and acceptance. And I can't help but wonder if that's because that's what he's watched his big brother do. Because actually who we see in this passage is, a young, is an older son who's just the same. He didn't run away. He didn't rebel from the rules or what was expected of him. He is a good boy who stayed and who did what he thought was expected and he's worked hard and he's never asked outwardly for anything. And yet, and yet he doesn't live as a son who knows that he's home. And I wonder, just as we start this morning, if the younger son from afar looks 
at the big brother and he thinks, that's how I have to come home, because that's how the big brother lives. And there's a little part of most of us, as Adam alluded to last week, that actually we really kind of respect something about the older son. There's a little bit of us that's actually sometimes on his side. And I imagine that the Pharisees who were listening in the crowd, the religious and the righteous who stood nearby the sinners and the tax collectors who were listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have liked these things about the older son too, that he does the right thing, that he is a good boy. Because actually, it's good to work hard. It's good to honour your parents. It's good to stick things out and have good morals and do the right thing. And that's not just secular moralism. Even Jesus tells us that in the Bible. The commandments tell us that. So how is it, why is it, that we're reading a story this morning where Jesus is trying to tell us this older son also is lost? How is he lost? Because isn't he justified in his frustration with the father? Isn't it unfair that he works and he serves and he tries his best, and yet he watches his screw-up kid brother be celebrated? Why does Jesus include him in this story? Why is Jesus also concerned about his older brother? I want to preface everything that I'm about to say to you this morning by saying this. If this feels a little bit uncomfortable this morning, let me put you at ease that I speak to you as someone who I get this brother. I really, Adam talked about this last week, but I used to really identify with the story of the prodigal son. And I think, to be honest, he's kind of the cool one. He's the one that most of us would quite like to identify with. He sort of has the nice, nice, he gets a good ending. He gets a good party and he comes home and the father accepts him and it's great. Nobody wants to be like the grumpy, cross, older son who actually doesn't really get a very good ending in the story. We don't actually know what happens. I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But I have realised that I identify with this older brother far more than I would like to think. And so know this morning that I speak to you as someone who stands right alongside you. I stand with you outside the party that so often our hearts refuse to go into. I stand with you in the field where you're working really hard. I stand with you in the tantrum that you're throwing because somebody else is getting what you think you deserve. But we're also standing together this morning before a father who didn't just come running for one son because he left a party for the second. He comes for both sons because the second one is just as lost and just as loved as the first. And because it turns out that we can follow Jesus, choose God, choose his house and his kingdom and serve him relentlessly. We can all do all the right things just like the oldest son, but that we too have never really come home, that we don't really know that we're welcome home. Feeling at home somewhere is like a universal symbol for acceptance. And you know the places, the friends, the homes that you can just walk into and kick your shoes off and make yourself a cup of tea and make yourself right at home. It is the language of welcome, of acceptance, of love. I haven't lived at home with my parents now for the better part of 15, probably longer than that, years. And yet I still have my spot at the dinner table. And um, the spare room is still my room, unless, of course, my sister is the one who's gone home, in which case it's her room. But home, as the old saying goes, is where our hearts are, where we know unconditionally that we are loved. And our story actually picks up 
with the older son coming home from a hard day out in the field at work. And it's so interesting to me that he comes home and he clearly sees that something's going on. There's a big party and he doesn't just go in. The text says that he calls a servant and goes, um, what's going on? I just think that's a bit, isn't that strange? It's like a big party going on in his house. And he doesn't just walk in and go, what's the party? What's going on? He doesn't join in. He stands outside, a bit awkward, and calls someone else and goes, um, what's this? He's not confident to just walk in. Something's going on that he doesn't recognize or feel safe with. He stands on the edge, suspicious, uncertain, already on the outside, doesn't think that he belongs. That's a heart that doesn't know its home. That's a heart that doesn't trust the father enough to believe that any party being thrown in his house is worth joining. That's a heart that is instantly suspicious. And you can hear the thoughts, the cogs turning in his brain before a word even comes out of his mouth. Why? Who's it for? Why wasn't I invited? Am I invited? Is it the kind of party that I would like? I bet it won't be the kind of food that I like. It won't be the kind of music I would want to dance to. Does that sound like a son who feels right at home in his father's presence and his father's house? And then he finds out the reason for the party. A party that is being thrown for his kid brother who has shirked work, done everything wrong, and made off with half the inheritance. And this really matters. We're going to pause a bit on the inheritance because if you are cut off from the family, then you're cut off from the inheritance. But if you're brought back into the family, then you're brought back into the inheritance. But the younger son has squandered half the inheritance. So that means the only inheritance that is left is what rightfully should be the older brother's. And so if the younger brother's been welcomed back, it means he's got to share it. It's going to cost him all his hard work, all his toil, and still it all seems to swing in someone else's direction. He has to absorb his little brother's debt. And so when he finds that out, he refuses to go in. And that is when it all comes out. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've sacrificed. Look at what I've given, done, tithed, created. Look at how many years I've been coming to church. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Give me the recognition, give me control. I've earned the right to have it my way. To have my say, to be first, to be celebrated, to be seen. When it risks being taken away from him, when it's freely given to someone else who hasn't earned it, he and we stamp our foot and we say, no, this isn't how justice work, works. This isn't how love works. Because essentially what he's saying to the father is, if you loved me, you would give me the fatted calf. And the truth is, is that we've all got a fatted calf in our sights. And yours will look different to mine, but we've all got the things that we think we deserve that our father God just doesn't seem to realize that we have earned and how dare he freely give it to someone else. And that might be our health, relationships, Situations with our family, work, finance, peace. It might be 
spiritual things like having a sense of calling or purpose. What about church? How many times do we stand on the doorway refusing to come in unless things are done a certain way that we like? Because older brothers believe that they've earned the right for things to be done their way. There is a transaction in the relationship with God that whether it's the things we do or the fact that we're still here or that we turn up to all the meetings, that there is the pride at the centre of our older brother's spirit that says, I have earned the right to have it my own way. Before I came to work for St Paul's, I worked for an organisation called Youth for Christ. And uh, our strapline, tagline, was to share the gospel relevantly with all young people. And, um, and when I first joined them, I sort of struggled a little bit with that word relevantly because I sort of thought, well, the Bible's always relevant. It's always relevant to all generations and in all times. But actually, one of the things I learnt, and I'm really grateful for this, is that what they meant was is that we have to think about how we take the gospel to each generation in a way that they understand, in a way that their culture can grasp. And that's challenging because it means sacrifice. What it means is that sometimes I might have to do things in a way that aren't that comfortable for me. I might have to learn lingo that I don't really care for. Um, I've just been on a holiday that was a lot of road trips and... uh, so lots of radio, lots of listening to like local radio stations, and um, had that horrible, horrible moment where there was something playing on the radio, and I heard the words come out of my mouth, oh, can we turn this off? It's just noise. And I just had that horrible moment of going, I've turned into my mother, and she's such a lovely lady, there'd be so many worse people to turn into, but you know when you spend most of your life trying to not turn into her, and then you're like, oh, it's happened. It just sounds like noise. But actually, if we want to reach a generation, then we might have to do some things that sound like noise to us. We might have to absorb some things that are costly for us. Would we do that? Are we willing to do that in order that little brothers and sisters come home? That they hear the gospel in their language and go, I've got it. And it's hard because the stubborn, rebellious cry of the older brother who stands outside the party is really the cry that says, what about me? What about me, Lord? What about what I need? What about what I want? Don't you care about me? We stand in so many ways with that cry upon our lips and deep, deep in our hearts. And I want to encourage you this morning that you're not condemned. If that's your cry, if you can hear that, that sometimes that comes out of you, what about me? What about me? What about what I want? What about what I've done? You are in good company. And what's the father's response? My son, my daughter, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And then the story ends. I know, it sounds like a rubbish sequel, but it's not. But then the story ends, and we actually don't find out, does he go in? Is is there a big family reunion? Why does Jesus, the greatest storyteller ever, leave this one unfinished? Because there's no way back for this big brother on his own. 
If we just leave it there, it's sort of quite depressing. I don't, we see that all around us all the time. That our anger, our bitterness, our pride, actually we're no match for our own emotions, for our own sin. And if you've ever experienced those emotions, you'll know you're no match for them. They overtake us. And we end up stuck in cycles of anger and bitterness and rejection. We can't dig our way out of it. We can't try hard. The big brother is always trying hard. He's always trying to earn it, and it doesn't work. He's just increasingly dissatisfied, angry, disappointed. There's no good ending as long as he's in control of this. But Jesus knows that the story isn't done yet, because Jesus is the true elder brother. He's our big brother. And as he sits and tells this story, and as we listen to it today, he knows that when he's faced with the option of losing you, a little brother or sister, or losing his inheritance, he chooses you. He's the perfect big brother. He gave up everything that was rightfully his, everything that he did deserve, all the honor, all the glory, everything that was his that was created in him and through him and by him. He gives up all of his claim on it, all his right to it. And then he says, you get all of my inheritance, not just half. You get all of it so that you can come home. He absorbs all your debt and he gives you everything, not just half, everything that is rightfully his so that you can come home. He's the true big brother who gives up all his inheritance so that every lost brother and sister gets to come home to everything that they never, ever have to earn. Well, you get to come in. Put your feet up. He says, you don't have to work for this. It's just a gift. He's done all the work. He's paid all the dues. And that's the thing about being truly home, is that it's yours already. And, and I know that many of us will have had, well, all of us actually, will have had imperfect fathers and mothers, because we all are. But actually, maybe whether it was a parent or a teacher, many of us grew up actually being told that we did have to earn love, that our worth is connected to our achievement, that the sin of the world can tell us that we have to be a certain way, a certain person, a certain something to be worthy of love or acceptance. But this father, even as his son shames him, even as his son refuses to come in and turns his face away, even in his fury and his anger, this father holds out his hands. And the closest translation in the Hebrew is that he says, child. It's actually not son. He says, child. It's so tender. He says, you're already in. You've got me. You don't need anything else. You're home. And most of us still think that we need the stuff. We need the fatted calf. We need the applause. We need to be listened to. We need it all to be our way. And often we're looking for him to prove his love by approving our actions. But instead, he proves his love for you with outstretched arms on a cross while you are still a sinner before you've done one good thing. He's given you himself, all that's rightfully his, all that you don't deserve, all you cannot earn. He has at the greatest cost to himself that it could have been given it all for you. So how do we receive it? 
How do we receive it? And then what difference does it make? Well, Henri Nouwen, in his book, Return of the Prodigal Son, says this. He says, trust and gratitude are the disciplines for the conversion of the elder son. And he goes on to say, without trust, I cannot be found. Trust is that deep inner conviction that the father wants me home. Listen to his voice today. He says to you, you are always with me. All that's mine is yours. We have to learn to trust him, that he really wants us. But there is an action for us in this as well. And I love that Henri now refers to this as a conversion of the older son because it suggests that there is a change, there is a turning that happens, which is that we have to choose to turn to him. We have to choose to look to the older brother and realize that there's nothing that we can do to earn our way in, but that the older brother has, the true older brother, Jesus, has done this for us already. That's repentance. It's the turning. It's just saying, God, I am sorry that I think all the good things that I do, all the right ways that I live, make you love me. Because they don't. He loves you anyway. And sometimes we we have to say sorry for that. We have to say sorry for our self-righteousness instead of trusting in his great mercies. And I just, when I was thinking about this, I just thought that sense of conversion, there might be some of you for whom this is landing quite deeply, come and do Alpha. It's such a great, it doesn't matter if you've been coming to church or been a Christian for years and years, sometimes we need a fresh revelation of who he is. We need to see him again. We need to ask those questions. We need to experience him afresh. Come and do Alpha. Really, really encourage you to do that. And when we begin to trust that, when we begin to trust that the Father wants us home, gratitude replaces resentment. And we become grateful, we become thankful that actually we are welcomed home. And we realize that everything is grace. It's all a gift. I just want to finish with uh, one story, and then I'll come in to land. But... um, I have uh, two nephews, and uh, when the second one was born, the first one was about two and a half, and uh, I looked after him whilst my sister was in labour. And uh, he, he was the first boy, he was actually the first boy in, like, there's just me and my sister, so he was, like, the first boy for a while, and he'd, um, you know, he'd been around for a couple of years, and he was sort of the apple of everybody's eye. And I think my sister was a little bit concerned about how's he going to respond to a new sibling. And I imagine those of you who are parents have had that similar thing of like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen when another baby comes into the family? And, um, and uh, I got the call to say, you can come around. It was a couple of hours after, after my second nephew had been born, and my sister said, you can come around, it's fine. So I took my, my eldest nephew around, he's about two and a half, and we got in, and we're all slightly nervous about how this is going to go, about what's going to happen. And, um, and my sister, she was in her room, in bed, with, with a new baby, who's all like snuggled up to her. I mean, it's a picture that you kind of think, oh my gosh, it's lovely, but how's this going to go? And my eldest nephew came in, and he just, made a, he just went straight to her, and he climbed up on the bed. He sort of stood there with a look of slight confusion on his face for a few moments, and he looked at my sister, and then he looked at this baby, and he looked back at her. And then this look, I'll never forget it, of complete amazement came over his face, and he just went, Mommy, the baby came out of your tummy. <laughs> 
And I love it because in that moment, and I've been thinking about this, two things happened. The first one was he knew his place on the bed. It didn't matter that my sister's cuddling a new little thing. He knows. That's my mum. I'm still welcome up there. That's still where I'm meant to be. And the second thing was that his childlikeness was able to grasp in that moment that this little life, this is amazing. This is a miracle. This is worth celebrating. Even though they have, they've got sibling rivalry and families are complicated and they're boys, so, you know, it's just chaos all the time. But in that moment, he gets, this is amazing. This is this life. This is a miracle. And that is the invitation of the father to sit on his lap, to be with him next to him and to look at the life, to share in the life that unfolds before us, that we get to be part of with him, to spend every day going, everything is grace. Everything is a gift. It's all grace, all of life. The very fact that you get to sit on his lap, that you can be with him, that you can be in his presence and be welcomed in, it's a gift. And actually, when we begin to sit with him, when we know that we're welcomed, not for what we can offer or earn, but when we begin to become like him, we begin to reflect his heart. We become those who stand at the window with the father watching for the prodigals to come home. And when we see them, we start running and we go for them, and our hearts become a place that are opened up so that little brothers and sisters can come home. This is the great story of the kingdom. This is his hope for us. This is the great commission. And you don't have to be something to do it. We don't have to play. We don't actually have to play the right music in church, or everything doesn't have to be perfect all the time, or it all doesn't have to be amazing. We just have to know that we are loved. And we have to receive that and trust that he wants us, that his love really is enough, and to really believe that all is grace. We all have a bit of the older brother spirit in us. But the invitation of the Father is, come as you are. You are welcome in the party. Come and be with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And when we do that, it will change the way we live. And to go right back to the beginning of the quote that Adam shared with us last week, I think it will change what other people see. Because they'll see a congregation and a community of older brothers who are really living like they know they're loved. And they're living in the party. And I think little brothers and sisters might look at that and go, I really want in. I really want to be part of that too. That's how the kingdom grows. That's how we all get to be family and we all get to come home. Amen.